This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Kristen Zima knew from an early age that she wanted to be a cop, and she was determined to break through the so-called brass ceiling at the police department in West Suburban Aurora. She became a cadet when she was 17 and rose through the ranks to become the department's first female police chief years later. Now, it was during that role that she met the biggest challenge of her career, responding to the 2019 deadly mass workplace shooting at a factory. It was the worst mass shooting in Illinois at the time. Now, she retired last fall and is now out with a new book about her 30-year career and her hopes for the policing system. It's called Reimagining Blue, Thoughts on Life, Leadership, and a New Way Forward in Policing. Kristen Zeman joins us now. Hi, welcome to Reset. Hi, Sasha. Thank you so much for having me on. So why'd you want to write this memoir? Wow. So (laughs) I had actually started writing this book in 2018, believe it or not. Um, I had written a blog over the years and had written for my local newspaper. So writing is just my outlet. It's my therapy. Uh, But really, it wasn't until I retired that I sat down to focus and drill down to finish it. And actually, I ended up scrapping what the original book was. And I kind of threw caution to the wind and decided to stand in vulnerability. And so, yeah, I finished it after I retired in September. Okay. Well, you, you opened the book with kind of a confession, right? That for the first time in your life during the civil unrest after George Floyd's murder in 2020, you questioned whether you even wanted to be a cop anymore. Can you take us back to that moment? Sure. It was really difficult for me in that moment, as it was for so many Americans. So, you know, I don't want to say that I had the monopoly on suffering at all, but I had seen law enforcement get better over the years, you know, and I I use this, this parallel that I started my career in in the 90s, you know, and that was the L.A. riots of Rodney King who were taking over the nation. Mm -hmm. And I ended my career at George Floyd when, you know, riots were were taking over the nation and civil unrest as a result of a police action. And if you look at those two bookends of my career, you would think, you would believe that we didn't get better. And, And yet I know we got better. I saw us get more professional. I saw you know, accountability come to policing. So, and especially when I look at my city, and of course I can only speak for my city of Aurora, the second largest city in Illinois, I know how professional we got. I know that our community trusted us. So when when George Floyd was murdered, it was as if a, a, a switch was flipped. And it was a little unbelievable to me that people were painting us all with a broad brush. And yet, as I you know, recount that, I think, of course, people paint us with a broad brush because when a police officer tarnishes one badge, they tarnish them all. Mm-hmm. So you've seen professionalism and, and accountability get better in policing? Yes, I, I absolutely have. And I, I know that, you know, that's a bold statement to make, especially it is. when you look at the media and when you look at the things that have occurred. But again, as I can speak for our city and our police complaints and our lawsuits, and, you know, and I look at the progressive professional police departments that emphasize training and de-escalation. We were one of those departments, thanks to my predecessors, and we aren't the only ones. When you look at a lot of the uh, reforms that came out of uh, post-George Floyd, the progressive police departments that were treating policing as a profession, holding officers accountable, were already doing most of those things. So I do push back because I have seen policing get better Mm -hmm. and, and absolutely more professional. 
I was uh, I was struck by your relationship with your mentor, uh, Vincent Gaddis. He's a local professor and expert on issues of race, class, and social justice. Uh, he's an African-American man. How'd your conversations with him open your eyes to, to certain blind spots that you had? Because for, for one, you mentioned that, you know, back in 91 with the Rodney King L.A. riots, your outlook on the incident back then was very different than how you think about it today. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So that outlook was right. This is was based on what was told of me in in the profession and even in the public in some in some way where they're saying that's what you get when you run from a police. And that was the mindset I recall at that time. And that's why I, I'm telling you that I know factually there's been an evolution in many progressive police departments. But back to Dr. Gaddis, I met him when I was doing a, uh, I was giving my community an update on crime. We had an increase in shootings. Dr. Gaddis attended one of these sessions and he walked up to me afterwards and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, I do not trust the police. And my response was, can we have coffee? I would love to I would love to explore this. And we started meeting for coffee. And that man showed me, um, really opened my eyes, forced me to look and to see um, based on, you know, my own vantage point. That's what I was looking at, my own vantage point. And he forced me to see from another perspective. And it's been such a gift to me to be able to learn from him. And I know that he's learned from me as well. He mm-hmm. ended up you know, be, becoming one of our biggest supporters of the police department. But wow, does he hold us accountable? So you mentioned a few moments ago that uh, police shouldn't be painted with a broad brush based on the actions of bad cops, right? You write in the book that we should be cautious about assigning race as the root cause of all incidents of police misconduct. Expand on that for me. Yeah, what, that's one of the back and forth that Dr. Gaddis and I had. When you look at, we look at action. So when you talk with a police officer, you know, people jump to conclusions that it is about race. And when then we look at the actions of an individual, and there are many times where perhaps on a traffic stop, you know, where we don't see the you know, who the individual is who is driving. So we look at the actions and we respond to those actions. And so when you look at statistics, you know, you can also see that there have been many, uh, for example, police shootings uh, against white people. And so, but Dr. Gaddis said to me when I argued with him, so let's, you know, use Shoan as an example in George Floyd. He never uttered a racial slur. Uh, there was no, no evidence. And, and, and I said to Dr. Gaddis, how do you know it was racially motivated? And he said, it's preposterous to believe that it wasn't. And I, and, and I believe that to be true. At least perhaps he wasn't saying it out loud, but there was most definitely a devalue of George Floyd's life. Now, why that was, I do not know. We don't have that evidence to point to it. But again, as Dr. Gaddis is as sure as he's breathing that it has to do with race. And I just think that's a good conversation to have. And he's opened my eyes to that. So you really think that if if George Floyd was white, that the treatment would have been the same? No, that's the point, is that people argue that, well, how do you know it was racially motivated? And that's precisely what the conversation, the back and forth is. And and my, my stance is, uh, he did not value that man's life. Was it because he was black? There is most certainly something to explore there. And that's, that's I think, where the conversation has to begin. That devaluing of life, it, it, I mean, what, where, what other label can you put on it? You know, 
does racism fit? You know, and that's that's what we're exploring in the conversations that we're having. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, Your response to those who say that we need to move beyond the narrative of, of the bad apple cop. Do you agree? No, I, I absolutely don't. I mean, I that that phrase is so overused, but I think that what we need to do is really look at why we're getting, quote, bad apples. You know, I mean, you have to look at the tree, you know, that bears the fruit, and you have to determine what, why are we getting individuals that are coming onto our police departments that, that should not have, uh, you know, that position of authority, that should not have a badge, you know, and so what is that? that is coming from the tree. And let's pair that tree and determine, you know, why that is. And we've attempted to do that throughout the years. I know in my department, when you go through background checks and psychological, you're trying to weed out those, quote, bad apples. And we do the very best that we can. And in this day and age, with our our background checks and and people on social media, most people leave a digital footprint. So you can tell what some of their thoughts are, you know, what they like, the groups, you know, with whom they they interact. And so, you know, we do the best we can, but that is arguably, people, people, for sure, fall through those cracks. Yeah. So no, I don't. I don't discount that notion. There are most certainly bad officers. I mean, in my tenure, I fired five police officers because I didn't believe that they they should have a badge. So I think that there that is, you know, call it whatever you want. We mm-hmm. have to get rid of people that should not possess a badge. So would you at least would you agree that the disproportionate number of black people shot by police shows that this is a systemic problem? I think that's what we have to look at, the numbers, because when you break down the numbers and you look at it, it tells a bigger story. Yeah. So here are the here are the numbers. Although half Mm -hmm. of the people shot and killed by police are white, black Americans are shot at a disproportionate rate. They account for less than 13 percent of the U.S. population, but they're killed by police at more than twice the rate of white Americans. Hispanic Americans are also killed by police at a disproportionate rate. So those are the numbers. Mm -hmm. It's, It's there. Yeah, and then there are also numbers about uh, crimes being committed, and who's being, so you can't take that out of the factoring of those numbers as well. And so to look, so what I propose is to look at each individual case, and there are most certainly times when an officer has to use force. Um, sadly, has to use deadly force. It's you know in alignment with the Constitution, but you had better be able to answer for it. You know, in with that responsibility, you know, with that power comes that great responsibility. And there are people out there who are harming our communities. They are creating havoc and committing violence against one another. And if a police officer has um, at, is in that unfortunate situation where they are defending themselves or someone else, mm-hmm. so let's stop and let's look at the action of the person. And then let's determine, did that officer take appropriate action on the human being? And that's what we need to do instead of blanket saying that cops do this. That's just as though we can't paint a broad brush on people who commit crimes and say, wow, that person commits a crime, so they must all commit crimes. Well, a police officer does something bad, therefore they must all be bad. I mean, any, any person who has logic and intellectualism understands that. Let's move on to to some more that's in your book here. You know, as police chief, you led the department's response to the deadly mass shooting at uh, Henry Pratt Company in 2019. Uh, That's where six people died, including the shooter. Um, Five of your police officers were injured. Um, You know, now we've got 
the worst mass shooting in Illinois, right? We've got the, uh, we're in the aftermath of the Highland Park parade shooting, which left seven dead, dozens more injured. You're part of the, inve- the, the team that's investigating the response to the school mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. So talk about that. What, what goes into responding to attacks like these? Yeah, well, and I, I mentioned it earlier about training, you know, and I mentioned de-escalation, but training, training, training. And this is what, again, you know, setting great police departments uh, apart is the training that they put into these active shooter incidents, the training they put into de-escalation in our city. And as we saw, you know, in Highland Park, the police response was uh, was phenomenal. And that response trains us that we move towards the gunfire sacrifice of our own well-being. Number one, you stop the threat. Number two, you tend to those who are injured. Those are in order. You have to stop the bleeding and then help those you know who are suffering uh, from the violence. And that is what our training has done over the years. We've put officers through scenario-based training, the kind of training where they play like they practice, where they go in and they are simulating an actual event in an mm-hmm. abandoned building with alarms going off, with smoke, you know, with sprinklers, and, and they go through the response as if it was real. So that when the moment comes, when man meets moment, Mm -hmm. they are able to perform in the way that they should. And that is precisely what police, what what we are asking our police officers to do in these incidents. Throughout the book, Kristen, you also share a lot about your personal challenges, right, from processing your father's suicide and and navigating your sexual identity uh, to dealing with failure in the public eye after, after not getting the police chief role in Chicago or Nashville. What did these challenges teach you about life and leadership? I had no intention of writing about my personal life, about my my childhood in this book. And then as I realized as I was sitting down writing the story of how I became a police officer and how I ascended through the ranks, I could not. Uh, I, I couldn't omit that from the story because it's what gave me the resilience. And the lesson that my hope was in standing in this vulnerability was to show people that even when you have dysfunction in your life, um, that you can overcome it and that building that resiliency is what will help you overcome it. So even though we may be doomed for you know whatever card that we are dealt in life that we can still be successful. And all of those things taught me about vulnerability, but more importantly, they taught me to get up after getting knocked down so many times and to keep going. That's retired Aurora Police Chief Kristen Zeman. We've been talking about her new book, Reimagining Blue, Thoughts on Life, Leadership, and a New Way Forward in Policing. Thank you so much for your time, Kristen. Thank you so much, Sasha. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.